Well, I wanted to just take a second and introduce our guest speaker this morning. We have a, a real treat. Our, our staff had the opportunity, staff and uh, spouses had a chance to pull away for a retreat this weekend. We're very grateful for that opportunity. It was neat just through kind of networking around in this area. We were introduced to Mark Riggins, and he's a associate pastor at a church called Encounter in Ventura. It's so fun to see how the, the churches, even in this area, are just, just generous with being willing to share and be a blessing. Mark's from Texas, born and raised in Texas. You can come on up as I'm chatting here. And uh, his wife, Ginger, and family are, are here, four kids, very blessed to have them. So excited to have you here. He moved just about six years ago. So I came here about five years ago, yeah. so about six years ago from Texas as a missionary uh, to, uh, to California. We need it yeah. for sure. So excited to have him share uh, from God's Word this morning. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. Well, I've gotten to know a little bit uh, in talking with Pastor Scott and Pastor John just what God is doing here in Agora Bible Fellowship. And it's so encouraging just to hear what you guys are doing, the way that things are growing. And, and you added this Thursday night service. I, I was told to come here. I told the first service, I honestly thought I was being punked a little bit. Like, hey, come to a Thursday night service. There will be people there, really. And there were, so that was really encouraging, a great service, and, uh, and then to see it full again here today, and to see the facilities as you've uh, just revitalized those, and to hear about the life change that's happening here, it is clear that God has his hand on this fellowship, and it's an honor for me and my family to be here with you this morning. So thanks for letting us be part of it. I know that you're going through the book of Acts right now, which is a great story of the first century church as it being launched. And so what we're going to do today, if you were to think of the book of Acts as a movie, we're going to pause right in the middle of the movie, and we're going to sort of do a backtrack, and we're going to look back with sort of a flashback at when it all started. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, and we'll look at that together. Then we'll pick up back in the middle of the movie, and we'll pick that back up next week as we continue on through this great book of Acts. But first, I want to ask you a couple of questions, and then we'll kind of dive into the scripture this morning. I want to see if I'm amongst real friends. So these questions are going to reveal that. Number one, how many of you would say that if you were to lift the hood on a car and look at the engine, you just sort of like to get in there and work with your hands. You just sort of have a mechanical bent. If you hear an engine, you just sort of know what's going on. How many of you that way you have a mechanical bent, you like to work with your hands? A few of you? Yeah, good. How many of you are completely intimidated by those kinds of people? Just raise your hand. Yeah, a few of us? Good. How many of you, and this is where, again, there's no shame here today, okay? Just be honest. How many of you would say that based on what you know right now, you could not change the oil in your car if your life depended on it? Would you raise your hand? Okay, a few of you. I am amongst friends. That makes me feel a little better. But my father-in-law, however, is, has always been really good with, you know, his hands and, and working on engines and so forth. However, I'm not that way. And so on day one... My wife and I have been married 22 years. It will be 22 years in June. We, were, um, we got married on a Saturday, and on, on Sunday we were headed out East Texas. We were going to the Smoky Mountains. We had a cabin up there in Tennessee, which is going to be great. First day, we're married. However, as we're driving down I-20 in East Texas, we're in this tiny little town you've never heard of called Canton, Texas, just a little spot in the road. And all of a sudden, the car, the steering column, which is what I later learned it's called, it begins to smoke. They aren't supposed to do that. I was pretty sure of that, but I wasn't 100% sure. I'm looking around like for the stop the smoke button. It didn't have one of those. I didn't know what to do, though. I knew that there was a problem that I didn't know how to fix. And I felt sort of hopeless in that moment. But the worst part were the next five words that came out of my new bride's mouth. 
when she said, I better call my dad. And I'm just thinking, what? Like, we just got married yesterday. Remember he handed you this beautiful union, and we said, for better or worse, including smoking steering column worse, here we are. I know that I don't know what to do, but let's be ignorant together. Like, that was my goal. She's learned to embrace that, by the way. And the truth is, there wasn't anything open in Canton, Texas on a Sunday, and so we had to stay the night. The next day, we went to a Chevrolet dealership. They could tell we were on our honeymoon. They fixed it, no charge, and sent us on our way. Yeah, that was cool. However, I didn't learn how to fix a car. I never have. And that came back to bite me many years later. We're instead of heading east out of Texas, this time we're heading west out of Texas. We're coming here to Southern California, and we're moving here. But instead of just my bride, we have now my wife and our four kids, and we're in this great big moving truck, and we're headed out here, and we'd get no further than Phoenix, Arizona. And I'll never forget because it was 118 degrees that day. Oh, it was miserable. Like, who lives there? It's like God's way of saying, don't live here, right? <laughs> don't you think? I mean, it's just common sense. So we're stopped there. We pull, and believe it or not, as we're going down the road, the engine begins to smoke. And I'm thinking... We didn't order this. Like, what do we do? I feel hopeless again. The worst part, though, were the five words that came out of one of my kids' mouth when they said, we better call our papa. <laughs> like, what? I'm right here. You know, like, so I pull off the side of the road, and I do what I knew to do. I pop the hood, and that was the last, like, that was the extent of my knowledge. I just had seen, <laughs> I just seen people do that. I knew that was, like, the next step. So I call the company, and I'm like, hey, here we are. And they're like, well, hey, what we'll do is we'll send a, you know, somebody out on your way. Well, while we're there, my six-year-old son, he goes, Dad, let me take a look at the engine. <laughs> so I'm like, all right. So he jumps on the wheel well. I take this picture of my son looking over the engine. <laughs> and no worries, it's not like a Hollywood ending where he was a savant. He fixed it with a rubber band and a paper clip. He had no idea what he was looking at either. But I thought this picture captured what I felt in that moment. And that is, I felt hopeless and insignificant. But what I love about this picture is there's an expert on the way. There's an expert nearby who was able to come and fix it, no problem, and off we were. And, you know, I've had people come and they were telling me earlier, they were like, hey, I bet this was wrong with that engine, wasn't it? And I'm like, yeah, I think that was it. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that was it. I don't know, but I do know this. There have been other seasons in my life when it had nothing to do with an engine where I still felt what this picture captures, where I felt hopeless and insignificant. You know, when things didn't turn out like I thought they were going to, and all of a sudden you're back in that place. I bet some of you are there today. Maybe your marriage isn't where you hoped it would be. Maybe your kids aren't making decisions that you wanted them to make. Maybe you have your finances keeping you up at night. Maybe you have a dream that has crashed. Maybe your career is not where you thought it would be. Your retirement's not going the way you thought it would. There's something broken. Someone's done something. Maybe you've done something, and now here you are feeling like you're over an engine in 118-degree weather, not knowing what to do. And my prayer is, as we look at this scripture today, that it will renew our perspective in what we are a fulfillment of and what we are a part of, and that we will take our hope, which so easily gets wrapped up in the world around us and the circumstances in which we find ourselves, and we would re-anchor it in this secure hope. So let's look at Matthew chapter 16, and before we dive in, could I just lead us in prayer? Father, thank you so much for these 
wonderful people who are kind enough to let me be part of the service today. As we open your word, I can't help but think there are many hearts that feel empty. Maybe they're struggling with doubt, some kind of darkness in their own life, and you know all about it. God, would you encourage us because of your word, your hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to look at one of the most famous conversations in Scripture. It is a conversation, if you're new to the Bible, that we reference a lot because it's so foundational. And so I hope you'll look along with us. If you've got uh, your own Bible or just pick up one of the Bibles in the, in the seat pocket in front of you and pull it out, Matthew chapter 16. We're doing a flashback from the book of Acts today, and let's look at how this all began. We're going to start in verse 13. If you look there with me, there's an interesting detail right out of the gate in this conversation. Look at it. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now, that's an interesting little detail that's just sort of thrown in there. And it's easy for us as we read the Bible from our 21st century perspective to think, oh, yeah, that's one of those biblical towns. But there's really something unique about this area. You see, Caesarea Philippi is in the northern part of Israel. Caesarea Philippi was known, it had a reputation for being full of paganism and idolatry. Sort of like we would look at Hollywood as being a film industry, or we might look at Ventura as being a surfing town. They sort of have reputations. In the first century, you would look at Caesarea Philippi, and you would say, oh, that's that place with Roman mythology and idolatry. They have 14 different temples to different gods, including the Greek god Pan. Uh, Caesar, who was thought to be a god, even had a temple. 14 different temples around the area. And yet it's here that Jesus chooses to have this conversation with his disciples. That's an interesting detail. And for whatever reason, he goes to one of the darkest places in the country to have this incredibly encouraging conversation. And I can't help but think that for those of us who may be in that hopeless, insignificant place in our life, maybe you're struggling with some kind of darkness or some kind of doubt, you feel like you have your own Caesarea Philippi moment going on in your life, to know that Jesus comes to those places. To know that Jesus seems to take this hope to anyone, everywhere, even when we find ourselves in Caesarea Philippi. There's good news today. That's an important detail. Now here the conversation begins. Look how it begins. Jesus asked his disciples, here's the question that kicks us off, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now the Son of Man is an important title here because Jesus is referring back to the book of Daniel where was predicted the Messiah would come who would both be divine and man, that Jesus is saying here, I am he. I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. I am the son of man. And now he's asking his disciples, now who do people say that I am? This is a question we should never ask ourselves about two other people about ourselves. Like we don't want to go to the company picnic. We don't want to go to the neighborhood gathering this week and go, hey, what are people saying about me? Right? Because we know what they'll say. Nobody's saying anything about you, right? Like that's the humiliating, like honest response. It's sort of like the old adage that says, when you're in your 20s, you're constantly worried about what everyone else is thinking about you. When you become in your 30s, you begin to be exhausted by worrying about what everyone else is thinking about you. And when you're in your 40s, it finally dawns on you. Nobody's thinking about you, right? So this is the question we want to ever ask. Jesus is asking, though, because he's going to go somewhere this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Look what the disciples say in response in this conversation as it continues. And they say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, what they're saying is, 
People think that you are an important figure. You're like one of the legends of the faith. We are recognizing respect and honor to you, Jesus. We really think that you're significant. And the truth is, as we go around in the 21st century, for the most part, this is the reputation Jesus even has now. Even if you don't believe that he's God the Son, the Son of Man, we still hear people often say, you know, important person in history. This is the reputation that he still has. We might say he's like Nelson Mandela or, or he's like Mother Teresa, someone who's really made a difference in this world. But Jesus never lets us stop there. He always pushes the envelope to reveal that he is God the Son. And if we were to scrub Jesus' deity throughout the Gospels, we would remove most of the Gospels. Because all throughout the Gospels, he's forgiving sins. He's healing people. He's performing miracles. And he's the one who's constantly saying, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I and the Father are one. If you hate me, you hate the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Over and over here, he declares that he's deity. Peter's about to say that he's deity. He will affirm that at the end of his resurrection. It's Thomas who comes to him and says, my Lord and my God. And over and over, we see his deity throughout Scripture. He never lets us leave it at, he was just a good person in history. And this is an important question. And Jesus is about to look at his disciples, and he's going to do what he always did. He's going to go from the global down to the individual, and he's going to say, okay, okay, it's enough about them. And look what he asks. He says, but who do you, who do you say that I am? And this is the preeminent question of our life. There are a lot of questions we'll answer in our life, in school, in our jobs, in our marriage. When we get pulled over by the police officer, there's a lot of questions we're going to answer in our lifetime. But this is the question that matters in the end. It's the premier question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And it doesn't matter what our spouse says, what our parents say, what our kids will say. It doesn't matter what our pastor, what our church. What matters is what do you say? Because someday we will stand before God. And this will be how our life is evaluated. Who did we say that Jesus is? And in this conversation, the disciples are thinking, and Peter speaks. Impetuous Peter, look how he responds. He says, This is his great confession, Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there, in that moment, he declares, God, I think you are deity. I think you are God the Son, the Son of Man. I think you are the promised Messiah. And the rest of the disciples are going, wait a minute. Something's changing here. And look how Jesus, he didn't stiff arm that. He didn't go, well, you know, maybe, maybe not. Immediately he affirms that. Look, look how he responds. And Jesus answered and said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Peter, you're not that smart. But my father has revealed this to you, my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock or upon this confession, this singular truth, I will build my church. And this is the word ecclesia. It's the very first time this Greek word has been used in the New Testament. And they knew immediately what it meant. It was a gathering, a gathering for a strategic reason. They understood it was never about a building where sometimes we sort of have changed the word today. They understood it was never about a place. It was always about a people. But they're thinking, I've never seen what you're predicting. So they're a little confused. And he's going to go a little further. And he's going to say, not only will I build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And in this place, 
The disciples are hearing this truth, and you know what they're thinking? What are you talking about? You're going to build something that's global and eternal? How is it that you're going to build something global and eternal? Like, if I look around this little circle, there's like one, two, three, four. There's like a handful of us. Like, this whole ecclesia can fit into a 15-passenger van. Like, there's not many of us. And then you're talking about it will prevail against the gates of hell. Like, no one knows we're here. No one cares. No one's opposing us. Like, I don't understand what it is you're talking. Because they've never seen what you and I regularly see. They've never seen this, where we are gathered here today. They had no concept of what this could become. And Jesus is beginning to predict what we're going through in the book of Acts. And here he's saying, and though there will be opposition, it will be an unstoppable force because I will be building my church. But then look what he says. He says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he says, then he strictly charged his disciples to go and build, to go and do, to go and perform, to go and shout. No? To go and tell no one that he was the Christ. Isn't that an odd thing for Jesus to require of his disciples? Because I can't help but think that as they heard about this idea of the church for the first time, as they begin to reveal that Jesus is God, as they begin to understand and just sort of, okay, I think I'm getting that. What's the first thing they would want to do? You want to go tell somebody. You want to be part of it. I can't help but they thought, well, Jesus, okay, I think I'm starting to get it, so what do we do? Do we need to build a 15th temple? Do we need to go get some resources, start raising funds, create a pyramid scheme, like create a marketing campaign? Like, what do we need to do? We're in. And he goes, I don't want you to do anything. I just want you to follow me. And they're like, okay, I'm in, but what do we do? And he's like, no, no, you... Just follow me. See, I didn't say that we would build our church. I said I would build my church. And I'm inviting you to simply follow me. You see, we would see this again after he rises from the dead where the disciples embrace him, and yet they're ready to go. And he goes, no, no, I just want you to go to the upper room and wait on the Holy Spirit. And then I will release you to be part of building my church. But for now, I just want you to follow me. I just want you to be with me. And, and as I, I read this conversation where we're stopping to look back at where the book of Acts and that story sort of began, there were just three simple truths that sort of bounced out to me, and I want to share them with you today. And I, I think it's, it's true as we read this scripture, we see this in the disciples, but I think we see it in our lives as well. Number one, the most dangerous Christian is the Christian who tries to build anything on their effort alone. I don't know about you, but this is one of the biggest battles I have. Because every day I wake up and I'm drawn to the to-do list. I want to climb the mountain. I want to do something I want to achieve. I want to do it for him. I want to accomplish. I want to see results. And yet every time he keeps saying, no, no, no. I don't need you to do anything. I just want you to follow me first. It starts with our relationship. And what's interesting, in our Western Christianity, because we so value performance that it infiltrates our faith and we begin to think that doing something for God is above knowing God. And he continually reminds us throughout the Gospels that it's all about knowing him, being with him before we do for him. 
And everything in me wants to start right here. And it is such a dangerous Christian to every day jump into my to-do list instead of being with him and to know him. This is why all throughout John chapter 15, we see over and over this idea of Jesus being the vine and we're simply a branch. You remember John 15, 5, specifically where he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you abide in me and I in you, we're abiding. Then he says, it is he who will bear much fruit, which is what we're after, right? Much fruit. And then would you just say this last line for me? Say it with me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now say it again, but really emphasize the word nothing. Say it. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what I need to pray each and every morning. God, you're the vine. I'm just a branch. I am nothing more than a branch. We are a room full of branches. And a branch never produces by grunting and sweating. A branch produces by simply being attached to the vine. That's its primary role. And when I am attached to the vine, he and me and I and him, I abide in him. Then I will bear much fruit, for apart from him I can do nothing. That's a great daily prayer. And the disciples needed to be reminded of that right out of the gate. I do too. Number two, second point, based on this passage, is the most defeated Christian is the one who focuses more on the presence of sin than the power of our Savior. They were in such a dark place here in Caesarea Philippi where there was such a clear presence of sin around them, so easy to be discouraged, so easy to think this was hopeless and insignificant. And yet they were in a more intimate circle where the power of Jesus stood amongst them. That is the same reality that you and I have today here in the 21st century in Agora Hills is we will constantly see the presence of sin. We will see it in a 24-hour news cycle. We will see it on our social media feed, and we will see it in the mirror. But the equal reality is there is the power of our Savior that is amongst us where he's promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's promised to go with us everywhere always. And we get to open this truth each and every day and anchor our lives around it and experience the power of our Savior. So there is the presence of sin, but a defeated Christian misses out on focusing on the power of our Savior. See, these disciples were struggling with that one. And they would struggle. In their defense, they were on this side of the resurrection or the other side of the resurrection. But they eventually got there, and it changed everything. Third point from this passage, from this conversation, is the most powerful Christian. This is the positive point. The most powerful Christian is the one who embraces the fact that God is in control, regardless of our circumstances. Now, that's a lot easier to say than to genuinely feel and believe. Because our circumstances are constantly changing, so it's as if we have to constantly relean our faith into this hope. Because things are different than they were last year or two years ago. Now all of a sudden I find myself here with this. And will I re-anchor my hope? Do I trust him here in this place with this brokenness that I face today? Over this engine, will I trust him here? You see, the disciples, they wanted to trust him. They really did. But they would go forward. And things would begin to change because all of a sudden... As they moved forward, Jesus was arrested, and he was eventually crucified, and then he was buried. And in that place, those disciples saw that as a hopeless and insignificant place. 
because three days later, even though they were with Jesus, they had walked with him for years, and they anticipated his predicted resurrection, they no longer believed. It had become a hopeless and significant place. See, if they believed, they would have done what we would have thought they would have done, and that is they would have been at the grave. They would have been there on day three with a group of people. They would have been promoting it. They would have had a megaphone. They would have had all the party favors with a big countdown, 10, 9, like here he comes. But guess how many disciples were there when Jesus resurrected from the dead? Zero. Because none of them believed that that was anything but a grave, a place of death and despair. It dawned on me, though, this Easter that all resurrections happen near a grave. And the reality is we all want the resurrection power, but none of us want the grave. None of us want that death and despair. None of us want that hopelessness, that insignificant season. But God has a way of meeting us there in our Caesarea Philippi, in our grave. He has a way of coming there and letting his glory shine even brightly, more brightly, when we will submit and trust in him there. You see, it's the way it's always been. This is the thing that God has always done. We can go all the way back in our scriptures to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and we'll see God doing his thing where he's created the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are there. They're enjoying intimate fellowship with him. But then we see Genesis chapter 3 where sin comes into the story and it comes into our bloodstream, doesn't it? And there in Genesis 3.15, we see the promise, though, of a coming Messiah where we're told that the serpent will bruise his heel, but the Messiah will crush his head. And we have hope again. But then we go to Genesis chapter 12, and we're wondering, how is it going to happen? Nothing's happened yet. And God begins to form a nation through the man Abraham, where he's beginning to build the foundation through whom the Messiah will come. But then, it's in 2000 B.C., Abraham finds himself in Canaan, which is a dark pagan place. He's got a barren wife, and God is saying, hey, I'm going to give you descendants that will be numberless like the stars. And he's thinking, but how, God? This is a hopeless, insignificant place. I find myself surrounded by death and despair. And all of a sudden, it's there where God shows up and provides Isaac. But then, about 500 years later, we find that the children of Israel have indeed become a nation but they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. They're now slaves in this place where they've lost their identity and they've lost their hope. It's become hopeless. It's become insignificant. It's death and despair. What now, God? And out of nowhere, God rises up Moses, who comes before the Pharaoh with laughable resources, and he says, let my people go. And God does what only God can do there. He releases the children of Israel, an entire nation marching across the desert, all to go back to the promised land as he had promised, as he had predicted. But then, about 500 years later, in 1000 B.C., we see the children of Israel being intimidated by the giants of the Philistines who were gathered around and threatening the entire nation. And they begin to wilt under the shadow of these giants. And they begin to think, why now? God, it's hopeless. It's insignificant. There's nothing but death and despair. And God, out of nowhere, rises up David, who stands up and says, hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's on our side. We could win this thing. And he 
goes out and defeats Goliath, the rest of the children of Israel follow suit. They are victorious. And it enters in this beautiful season. It's the most glorious days of the kingdom of Israel. It moves into that kingdom era. But then... About 500 years later, the entire nation finds itself in Persian captivity around 500 B.C. And here they find that the man in the king's office in the king's palace named Haman is actually plotting to kill the entire Israeli forces, the the entire Israeli nation. And they begin to think, why here? Why now? Is this the way it ends? This feels so hopeless. It feels so insignificant. Haman even goes to use the Mordecai, the, one of the patriarchs of, of uh, the nation of Israel, and he's built the gallow through which he'll take Mordecai's life. But there, out of nowhere, God rises up Queen Esther, and with courage and boldness, she goes before the king, King Mordecai, and she begins to reveal God's truth. God speaks to Mordecai, and that night he sees God's plan. And the next day, it's Haman who dies in the very gallows he built for Mordecai. And eventually, the entire children of Israel are released, and they go back to Jerusalem. Why? So that 500 years later, they're in a hopeless, insignificant town of Bethlehem. There, heaven kisses earth. And God the Son, the Son of Man, comes born in a manger so that he could offer redemption and hope, so that he could build a church that we could study through the book of Acts, so that we could gather here today. He lives a perfect life, and yet he dies on the cross to satisfy the justice of God and to reveal the love of God so that you and I could have our sins forgiven and we could have hope again in being restored in a relationship with the Father. And eventually he is crucified and then buried in that tomb and all of history pauses its breath. And then three days later, God conquers death, and Jesus Christ rises from the dead, and the disciples eventually see and surrender their lives to him. And on this side of the resurrection, they are forever changed, and they are ready to go from the upper room and do what God had promised he would do. And they began to do what we're reading through the book of Acts, and we see Jesus beginning to build his church. And they would give their life to this cause, and most of them would die a martyr's death, and their blood would be the very seeds of the church that we enjoy today. And generation after generation, we've seen Jesus do what he promised he would do, that he would grow his church, that there would be opposition to his church, but the gates of hell would not prevail, and his church would be unstoppable. Over and over throughout history, we see this process happen throughout the Middle Ages, throughout even the period of enlightenment when we have people like Voltaire over 300 years ago who said, I may believe in an intelligent designer, but I cannot believe in the God of Scripture. It seems too improbable, irrational, illogical, and impossible. And so he began to write over 2,000 books and pamphlets saying that this is not a rational faith. He wanted to knock the legs out from underneath it, and there was a growing response to his rational approach to life. Eventually, he felt so confident that he made this proclamation. He said, within 50 years of my death, it is my goal to end and kill Christianity. And with my pen, I want to single-handedly destroy the church the apostles built. But he was wrong on two accounts. Number one, the apostles didn't build the church. Jesus is building his church. And number two, Christianity didn't die. Voltaire did. And 50 years later, from the home in which he made the prediction, the Geneva Bible Society began to set up camp there 
printing and distributing scriptures throughout the region and throughout the world. Why? Because Jesus keeps his promises. And he said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And here we gather today in Agora Hills, a place that didn't even exist when he made this prediction 2,000 years ago. We are a fulfillment of the very prophecy, the very prediction that he made. But we don't gather here alone. We instead, we gather with saints all around the world. There are not millions, but literally billions of believers now. We can no longer fit in a 15-passenger van like they could that day. People are gathering all over the place today. They're gathering in huts. They're gathering in yurts. They're gathering in tents. They're gathering in open-air meetings. They're gathering in the underground church. They're gathering in the house church. They're gathering in cathedrals. They're gathering in beautiful places. Places like this. And when we see them all gathered together, there would be all nationalities, ethnicities. There would be people of all different denominational backgrounds like Baptist and Methodist and non-denominational and Bible and community churches. There would be Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Church of God, Church of Christ, Assembly of God, Charismatic. We'd see the whole gamut of people coming at it from different doctrinal positions. If we saw the church today, we would see people who on this side might be Calvinist. On this side, they'd be Arminian. On this side, they'd be Reformed. Formed and non-reformed and uninformed. We'd see, we'd see people see the sign gifts this way and that way, baptisms this way and that way. But what we all have in common is we gather here today at Agora Bible Fellowship. We gather endorsing the saints of old and we join the saints around the world this morning to declare this one thing, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. And that's what we've come to celebrate, and we unite under that proclamation even here today, just as Jesus predicted we would. Nothing can stop his church. And there are a lot of things you and I can do that would be a lot more profitable and a lot more popular. There are a lot of things that we could do that might be easier to to travel down that road, but there will never be anything that is more hopeful and more significant than joining him in building his eternal church. Church, it is the greatest opportunity of our lifetime to join him in building. What is building his church? It means leading other people to discover that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. It is the very epicenter of all the activity of God. He is building his church. And as we gather around, as we drive around rather, we'll see all these other little ecclesias and every time we can just stop and praise God, you are building your church, you keep your promise. And here's another example here in Agora. I, you know, I just, I just can't help but think that Jesus, if he were here today, he would take it from the global and he would go to the personal. And he would ask, what about you? It's easy, isn't it? In the day in which we live, to find ourselves over an engine in a hot, hot day. In the engine smoking, we're thinking, what now? And we look at the scriptures and we see Jesus has always been building his church and we get to be part of that. But what about you? Let me give you three questions and we'll close. Number one, if you look at your own life, could you ask yourself this question? Is there anything in your life that you are trying to build on your effort alone? Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a dream. Is there anything you're trying to build? It's so easy, isn't it? Just to achieve, to perform before we abide, before we are with. Are you trying to build anything on your own? Number two, Are you focusing on the presence of sin more than the power of our Savior? It's easy to do, isn't it? Man, it's a discouraging place to be. To daily begin my day in the presence of my Savior. 
and to remember the power, the eternal, unstoppable power of my Savior. Then number three, and this is the tough one. Do you really believe that God's in control regardless of your circumstances? You know, sometimes it's easier to look back and say, you know, two years ago that was easier to say yes. But now that I'm here with this dead dream, now that I'm here with this broken relationship, it's hard. It's hard to trust him here. But this is the mark of a growing faith. And this is where the disciples eventually found themselves. To say, I will trust you no matter the circumstances. I'm so grateful that you are in control. And I can trust you even here. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy to walk down the roads of hopelessness and insignificance. Father, it's... I don't know what people here in the room this morning may be wrestling with, but, but you do. You, you know all the details of the Caesarea Philippi experience they might be having right now. Father, you've been building your church way before we got here, and you'll be building it way after we're gone. And when we leave this room today, everything in our world will tempt us to put our hope in that thing or that person. May we, again this morning, just sort of recalibrate, sort of get a fresh perspective, and to anchor all our hopes, to go all in, in putting our hope in the one who is secure. His name is Jesus. Father, our hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And today, we lean again into that hope and that hope alone. And it's in the power of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. I'm hoping you're blessed like I was even this morning. Just thank you so much, Pastor Mark, for just encouraging us. I think if there's anything, any assessment of this, I think we all chose wisely if we've put our hope in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I pray that you have a wonderful Sunday. God bless you.